Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Today's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. And for those of you who love love history, uh, you will appreciate it, I think. For those of you who do not, uh, you can go ahead and take a nap now. It's rain. It's kind of peaceful in here a little bit. Take a nap now, and you can watch it on Facebook later when you get home. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But uh, I want to go back a generation before that and, and talk a little bit about Moses. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture uh, today. But uh, Moses, Moses knew that he was near death. Uh, he, was already, he was already old. And God spoke to Moses and he said, this is in Numbers 27, uh, specifically in verse, verse 12. But God told Moses, as you get near Mount, uh, Mount Arabim, there is, uh, you're going to look over into the promised land and when you can see it, you, but you cannot go into it because of the rebellion or the uh, uh, sin that Moses did uh, when he was at Meribah. So we have to think about what, what was happening here. This goes back to Numbers chapter 20. So God told Moses, you can't go into the promised land. You've been leading my people for 40 years, but you can't go in because of the rebellion at, at Meribah. Okay, so uh, it's kind of a complicated story, but the, the people were complaining about not having anything to drink. Miriam is dead, her rock has dried up, and uh, there's no water. And people begin to complain and grieve, and they're complaining to Moses, and he's about sick of it. And he goes in to, uh, to God, he and Aaron, and God told Moses, he said, Moses, take your staff and take Aaron with you, and I want you to speak to the rock and, and water will come out. And you remember what happens, right? You remember uh, this story when Moses gets to the rock and what does Moses do? Instead of speak to the rock, Moses, oh, he's so angry. I would be angry too if I were Moses. His daughter, his sister has just died. He's grieving. He's frustrated at these people that he's been leading. God says simply, speak to the rock. Take your staff, speak to the rock. But Moses hits it twice. But I don't think that's the only problem that's going on. There's a couple of clues here. And one of those things is the thing that Moses says. Moses gets in front of all of these complaining people and he says to them, shall we bring water from this rock Whoa, that doesn't sound too harsh, but Moses just took credit for what God was about to do. That's serious. Shall we, oh, Moses, you know how to bring water out of a rock now? Shall we do this thing for you people? I think this is the most egregious sin that Moses sins here. He does hit the rock. It wasn't enough. He hits it twice. God is faithful to do what God says he's going to do, and he waters his people. Now, I want to take a moment, and I want to talk about God's glory for just a second. I want you to remember who Moses is. Moses was raised in a pagan home. 
although Moses knew he was a Hebrew, we don't know exactly how he was raised, but we do know that there was, he recognized a disparity between Hebrews and Egyptians. And when he recognized that, there was one specific day where he looked around and he saw that this Hebrew was being abused by an Egyptian and Moses surveilled the situation and he saw nobody was watching and he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Tomorrow, somebody came to Moses and says, hey, we saw what you did. Don't hurt me like you did that Egyptian yesterday. Moses is terrified and he flees for his life. For 40 years, he wanders the desert. Very quick, right? I'm paraphrasing a lot. Moses was a murderer. Moses ran. And Moses was appointed to be the deliverer of Israel. But when you come against the glory of God, I'm not saying that you should get away with murder. What I am saying, it wasn't murder that kept Moses out of the promised land. It was when he took credit for what God was doing. Serious. So just before Moses' death, Moses knows exactly what's going on here. And he shares his farewell address. Uh, Most scholars believe that the book of Deuteronomy is written over a month period of time where Moses does know this this is his farewell address. It's a farewell song. Last words are typically reserved for the most meaningful, the most important things, the summation of the most important things, the don't forgets. Remember these things. And interestingly, in Moses' last addresses to his people, he mentions the spiritual education of their children more than he mentions anything else. Six times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds them that they need to make sure that they have a faith tested so that it can be passed down to the next generation and for their children's grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. So the point is that Moses is, is incredibly concerned about parents teaching their children and passing down their faith in God to their kids, leaving a legacy. Now, if we're not careful, again, sometimes I want to say I I don't want to sound too preachy, but it's kind of what I do, so I don't want to sound harpy, though. But if we're not careful as parents, we live as if faith is caught, not taught. And so we begin to parent spiritually. We don't, we don't do this way in very many things. We make sure they do their math homework and their English homework and they read their book. But we're not making sure that they're reading the book. We make sure that they know how to spend money and how to do all of those sorts of things, how to make money. We make sure of all of that, but we don't know, we're not teaching our kids how to be stewards of themselves, of their own morality, of their own decision-making. We, we try to make sure that we expose our kids to things but I'm afraid we're not spending much time educating our kids toward things. And what I mean by that is we're very, take, less likely to take responsibility for, for their education, spiritual education, personally. Like it's our individual responsibility. Again, not to expose them to Christian teachers but to be their Christian teachers. Not to make sure that they're around church people, 
but to be the church and function obediently in our homes like we know we should do. But we may maintain some level of morality and we may raise good, kind kids, but I'm telling you, if the education does not include why, then it's only a generation deep. You can teach children to be moral. You can teach them to have standards of conduct, but if they don't know why, it's only one generation away from extinction. So we begin with obedience. What one, one, nation, one generation obeys out of a personal relationship with God. Another one values what the previous generation had. And then the third generation will appreciate the stories that they heard of faithfulness. And then the last generation will see it as all hypocrisy. One generation proves its importance. One verbalizes its importance. One tells the story of its importance. And the fourth one, it's unimportant. We see this modeled occasionally in scripture, I think on purpose. You have, you have an Abraham who has encounters and a relationship with God, a friend of God. Because of his faithfulness, it was imputed to him or accounted to him as righteousness. You had his son Isaac who witnessed his dad's encounters, some of them anyway. Jacob who still knew God's promises, but he did not walk with God until he had his own encounter late in his life. We see the same thing lived out from David and Solomon and Rehoboam. And now these aren't promises. These are not guarantees that it goes this way. But they do help guide us to the fact that every generation, every generation must have, every person needs their own encounter with God. Every generation. What that means is, is that we're, for a while we expose children to right things, to right people to right conduct, to truth. But a time comes in every child's life where they have to own that for themselves. And they may make a decision to follow Jesus because of what they've been exposed to. But discipleship is about raising them in such a way that there becomes an encounter with God that they cannot deny for the rest of their life. I think most I, I dare say American Christianity because I don't think that that's universal. But there is such a watering down of the gospel and such a, such a fear to be offensive that we do not teach our children to have an encounter. And maybe it's a Baptist thing because we're terrified of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. But it seems to me that every generation should be able to hear, thus says the Lord, to their own heart. And it seems to me that in Scripture, that is not relegated to the local church. It's to moms and dads to leave a legacy of faith to their children. And the church comes along to help. First generation is affected by their heart. 
But once you remove the heart, you have the mouth and the mind. So some generations just talk about it, but they've never experienced it. They talk about it. And then when they stop talking about it, you don't even, some, some Christians don't even talk about faith. There are some things you don't talk about in polite company. They don't even talk about faith. They don't even have a testimony. They don't even, they can't even tell you about their salvation experience. They can't tell you what God has delivered them from. And they're certainly not excited about it. They just think it up here. It moves from the heart to only the mouth and ultimately just to mind until it doesn't at all. And I'm telling you, we are growing close as a society. I don't know if you watch the numbers or not. I don't know how accurate they are. But there are more nuns in America now than there have ever been before. And by nuns, I mean people who check none to faith. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, you don't have to turn there. I think that it might be on the screen. I'm not altogether sure. It was last week because I've been trying to preach this sermon for three weeks. Well, you can just listen along. Deuteronomy 4, 8 through 9. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What Moses is saying is this. Nobody has the advantages that we have. We know what God wants for us. Verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, and you shall teach them diligently to your children these things that I'm teaching you today, he says. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This word that Moses uses is the Hebrew word shanon, which means to pierce or to sharpen, to use the commandments of God as a wet stone to, to, to push your children alongside until they are sharp in the Lord. It's like to prepare them for an archer's arrow so that when they are launched, you, you send out your children. It's like sending out the word of God. Wouldn't, isn't that a beautiful picture? Because your children have been sharpened by the word of God. Not that they've not only got it memorized here, they don't only know some of it up here, but it commands their life here. They don't know how to quote it. They know how to live it, to apply it, to give counsel. I'm not diminishing the importance of memorizing it at all. I'm just saying we can go through the motions, but if it doesn't transform lives. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I believe here the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Parents are to use the word of God as their instrument and their resource to raise their children. The word cuts both ways. It protects them as a weapon, but it also, like a surgeon's knife, brings healing to the broken. There's one more word here that I want to draw out, and it's the word teach them. 
but also talk. The Hebrew is debar. It means to, so we teach them diligently to your children and talk of them. It means to speak or to declare with personal conviction or confidence, like personal involvement. It's to have spiritual conversations with your children where you speak as an authority, where you speak as a practitioner. And it, and it works both ways. It's a conversation where you speak with them, you hear back, you have answers for them and questions for them and you lead them this way. Talk of them when. Talk of them when you come in. Talk of them when you go out. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Talk of them when you walk by the way. Talk, talk with them when they lie down at night. Talk with them when they wake up in the, day, in the morning. It's, it's this perpetual lifestyle Listen, if your faith is regulated to when you go to church or when you go to class or if you're in a particular study, you're missing what it looks like to walk faithfully with Jesus. It is a daily habit of spending time in his word and spiritual conversations in your home should be natural if your heart is supernatural. This next one is Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. <laughs> it implies that your lifestyle is going to be such that even your children, not just your neighbors, your children are going to say, what is up with you? Why do we do, why do we live like this? Other people don't live like this, dad. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord has commanded you? Why do we live like this? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we carefully do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And you may say, well, I wasn't in Egypt. What story am I supposed to tell? You may not have been in Egypt, but you were in slavery to sin and God delivered you out and brought you to himself and your testimony belongs to your children. And they should be able to see something quite different than your testimony in your life. Your children need to know what God has done in you and for you and wants to do through you. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. you shall teach these things that I'm teaching, commanding you today. Teach them to your children. Talk of them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Wait a minute. Didn't he already say that? He did. That's just how important this is. Deuteronomy 31, 12 and 13. Assemble the people, men and women, and bring the little ones and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. Notice what he said, not to hear the words of the law, to do the words of the law. And that their children who have not known it, they did not see it, they did not hear it, 
They did not witness it. They did not have their own encounter. But that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Your story becomes their story until they have their own story. Finally, Deuteronomy 32, 45. When Moses had finished speaking, this is the end. This is it. Moses, the greatest prophet other than Christ himself, had finished speaking all these words to all Israel. He said to them, take heart, all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your, anybody want to guess? To your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. Moses commanded parents to make known, to teach, to command, so that they may hear and learn to fear God, which is for their good always. Now, we shift gears, and we're going to get over to Joshua 24. It's a generation later. This is Joshua's swan song. We just looked at Moses, some of Moses' message to Israel. This is his, young, his assistant, Moses' assistant Joshua, now as he is facing death as well. This message that Joshua is given takes place in, a, in, a, in an area called Shechem. Shechem was, I think, very intentional for Joshua. Uh, its, its location, he, he was using this as an object lesson, I believe, uh, because he's trying to tie the past into the future. He's trying to use this as a transitional moment where they have not only transitioned from, from Moses, who was attached to Egypt, but now he's the first generation leader in Israel. And this is a, pre, this is a pretty big transition from jo, to Joshua to whatever else is next. And so in Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to turn over there, but Shechem is the place when God, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and he called him into the promised land. It was Shechem where God said to Moses or to Abraham, look around and everything you see belongs to you. And I'm going to make you a mind. This, this is where this takes place in Shechem right here. And what does Abram do with that information? The first thing that Abram does is he dedicates himself to the Lord and he builds an altar at Shechem. I, I, I really, it doesn't say this, I highly doubt that Joshua is, is too far away from eyesight of Abraham's altar. But, but going just a little further, this is, this is Abraham, who is the founder of Israel, nation Israel. This is his dig in. This, this altar is his all in. If you go back very far, you will see that Abraham's people didn't worship God. They worshiped many gods. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, but this is where Abraham is saying, as for me and my house, digging in. I mean, he, this is a declaration of war against all of these pagan gods. You know, fast forward a couple generations later, you've got Isaac, and then you've got Jacob, and Jacob got in big trouble. Not, not a great 
not a great guy early on. And he runs away and he goes to, uh, uh, to his uncle Laban's house and he ends up marrying two of Laban's children and he, they, they get married. He just amasses all this wealth and, and uh, prosperity and it's time for him to leave. And so there's a lot of conflict going on. He and Esau, his brother, are not on good terms either. I mean, everywhere this guy goes, there's, there's bad relationships. And so he moves and he's headed back. He just, he just left Pen and Aram and he goes on to, uh, to meet Esau and they kind of bury the hatchet as it were. And it's after that when Jacob is like, all of this stuff with my wives and my uncle and all of this stuff with my brother, it's kind of all settled. And you remember what happens? Uh, it's one of the, it, it, it's, it's Joseph, uh, Jacob has this encounter with an angel of the Lord and they wrestle. You remember? Jacob's wrestling with an angel and the angel just touches his hip and it comes out and from then on he walks with a limp to remember this moment, you remember what Jacob does when he wakes up in the morning? He builds an altar. Guess where it's at? Shechem. This establishment, when God looks at jo Jacob and he says, no longer will you be called Jacob. From now on, your name is Israel. This is the place where Abraham said, here. This is the place where Jacob said, here. This is the place where Joseph, going forward, his two sons by Egyptian women, Ephraim, one of them. Eph this is Ephraim's territory right here in Shechem, the, the Gentile that got adopted into the people of God. Here in Shechem. This is where, Josh, where uh, Joseph's bones are going to be planted into the ground. Here in Shechem. It's important to know the setting because this is a momentous event and message as Joshua is giving his swan song to these people he desperately loves. He says here, this historically rich place that even the most nominal Jew would get chill bumps walking into. He says, I want... You've got to stop living so wishy-washy. This is the moment. Not only are we just from one man, but we are a nation now. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said all to all the people, Thus says the Lord. That's important. Before the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took, that's very, first three is very important because it shifts immediately from Joshua telling the story. Now God is telling the story. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. He's speaking of their history. He's talking about the gods that they used to worship. Abraham's history was in Ur and they worshiped the God of the moon whose name happens to be Sin. And the Babylonians worshipped many, many gods, but sin was the premier, the, the main god of, of the, those Babylonians. 
And these other gods that Abraham used to worship, they were takers. They were constantly taking from people. But God reveals himself to Abram as a giver. I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you a people. I'm giving you a name. This planner, this personal God who continues to bless. If you, then this kind of a relationship. And Joshua reminds them, you did not choose him. It's so important. Here we are at this last moment and you did not choose God. He could have chosen anybody and he chose you. He still chooses you. Verse five. And I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Don't you, don't you love God's voice through Joshua? This, I, I, you know, you think there's anybody in the crowd that doesn't know this story already? Is there anybody that's going, huh, I always wondered where we came from. That's, that's a great grandfather. Of everybody knows the story, but God is telling it from the first person. This is not Joshua's memories. This is God's providential plan for his people as he explains it to them very clearly. He's reminding them that he was there. God himself was the eyewitness. And he reminds them of all of his encounters with his people. And in this very partial retelling, he uses the personal pronoun I no less than 17 times as God himself is a part of Joshua's farewell address. He uses these personal pronouns, but then you get to verse seven. In verse seven, he says, and then they cried to the Lord and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come up over them and cover them and your eyes saw what? Now we're back to the personal eye again. What I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness a long time. So as I was reading through this, I thought, what is going on here? Why does he jump this one pronoun? Why does he jump to he instead of I? Why would Joseph, is, is Joshua coming in and out of this story or what's going on? So I turn back over to Exodus chapter 14 and I read the story. And surprisingly enough, Moses raised up his staff and the angel of the Lord put a darkness between Israel and Egypt. A cloud, as it were, to separate Israel from Egypt. So when God is retelling this story, He's talking about he, the angel of the Lord, not himself. God himself did not do it. God used the angel of the Lord to do it. For God to use I here would have been inappropriate and incorrect. I just thought it was interesting as I looked at it. Exodus 23. You don't have to turn, turn there. But Exodus 23, verse 20, here's what the Lord says about this. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay attention, careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him. This is the angel of the Lord I was talking about from Exodus 14. 
Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice and do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. There's a couple of clues here to let us know who God the Father is speaking of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them to you. This one speaks for God. He is the word of of God. Clue number two, he has the ability to forgive sins. Number three, he has God's name in him. Who do you think the angel of the Lord is? Here we are in the middle of Joshua's farewell address, Yahshua speaking to his people and saying and bringing up the remembrance of the Messiah who was there long ago. The one that they knew, this is the promised one of God. A Christophany, if you will, where Jesus shows up and the pre-incarnate Christ shows up to begin launching his people into freedom. Joshua, ultimately the Lord, is, is leaving no stone unturned in reminding Israel of who they are. And they cried to the Lord. He, he, when they cried to the Lord, he, what happens when you're distressed? Cry to the Lord and he'll deliver you. He'll answer. But if you're in distress and you don't cry out to the Lord, you'll be tempted to complain and to murmur and to control things yourself. But God provides for them. He gives himself to them. Look here in verse, was it verse 8? And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. I want you to notice what God, everything that God is doing here. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I drove them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not not built and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. God is reminding his people that he provides for them in battle and he provides for them in blessing. And he wants to make sure that they know that it was not their weaponry, it was not their army, it was not their bow, it was not their sword. And the reason that Joshua is, is doing this it's because their obligation to God is so intense. God has been so good to them. And yet, if you were to carve Joshua out of this story and just look at the current state of Israel, they're not great people. They're entitled. They're complainers. They're miserable. And so Joshua is simply saying, you have forgotten what God has done. He chose you, he brought you, he protects you, he provides for you, he gives himself to you. Everything you are is dependent upon him. You'd better make sure your children know it. 
How can you not tell your children about how good God is? And so he gets to this call to do something. You've got to respond to this in some way. Sitting on your hands isn't going to be good enough for your children. So Joshua goes first. And in doing so, he describes the choice and what the choice is going to look like. Reverence, faithfulness, service to the Lord, abandonment of every other God and every selfish idea. Verse 14, now, now hearkens back to because who he is and because of what he has done and his faithfulness. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua firmly announces his call. He goes first. I'm not going to wait to see what the majority is going to do. I don't really care what every other family is going to do. I want to go, I want to go first and tell you what I am going to do. I don't need a moral majority. I don't need a popular movement to make my decision. But then he calls each family to make their own decision. In doing so, he describes what that choice is going to look like. Ultimately, it is a complete surrender to God and an abandonment of all other gods. It's interesting to me when he says, he explains to them these pagan foreign gods that Ur, the moon god, sin was supreme. It wasn't enough for Abraham. Abraham had experienced a lifetime with his dad in Ur of Chaldees and all of those Chaldean gods, but they weren't enough. And so when Abraham found, it, found, found, found God, he found enough. When Baal was the principal god of the Canaanites, that we were the Amorites that were living there, and Ashtoreth is Baal's wife, and that, that was their principal goddess. And the Canaanites worshiped Baal and Ashtoreth by practicing immorality as this religious ritual. They would even go into temples and they would perform all sorts of immorality in there in the presence of, of these gods. And then they would murder their firstborn children as a sacrifice to these gods. And they have seen, you have seen, these gods are liars and they are not enough. They are takers, but our God is a giver. You have not, you've got to learn how to not just repent, you've got to learn how to surrender. Look at what God has done for us. He's defeated every other God of the Egyptians and every other God of all the Ites in Canaan. We have learned that every God has been beaten by this God. Why do you keep these gods on the shelf with Jesus? And see, this is one of the problems with like cultural Christianity around the world is there are, there are many polytheists or many pluralists in the world who when they hear about Jesus they'll gladly accept Jesus and put him on the shelf one of the things that I have learned is is in in countries like Korea for instance Korea is is known for being accepting of Jesus Christ but not renouncing every other god you see when you renounce every other god there's a testimony on your lips but when you add Jesus to the list of gods that you worship there is no testimony. 
just acceptance. This is what Joshua is talking about. You can't just add Jehovah to a list that you worship. Israel allowed paganism and wickedness and idolatry in their past, but Joshua said, it's a time for us to dig in. It is a time for us to declare war and put the past behind us. In fact, if you go to the previous chapter, Joshua 23, verse 8, Joshua says this, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. That word cling is very, very interesting. And I'm not going to break it down too much, but it's found several times in Scripture but it means to cleave. It's the exact same word as we find in Genesis chapter two. When you enter into marriage, there is a leaving of things past and there is a cleaving to the commitment that you've made. And that's not just an earthly commitment. That is an eternal commitment to leave and to cleave. And it's interesting that this is the word that Joshua uses when he talks about our relationship with Jehovah. There is a leaving of these false gods and a cleaving, a surrendering to Jehovah alone. They were great at returning to the Lord. It only took hundreds of years of slavery to get their attention. They were great at returning, but they were just as good at leaving. And Joshua says it's time for faithfulness. Now, Joshua's own pledge here isn't rash. Remember, Joshua was one of the 12 spies that went in to Canaan to spy out the promised land. Joshua has been sitting on this, I told you so, in his pocket for a really, really long time. And he never used it. But Joshua had served God all his life. And the night before his death, he renews his vow. He's 110 years old here. The night before his death, he has been faithful to the Lord all of his life. And the night before his death, he renews his commitment. And not just his, but my family. I've taught my family what to do. I know what the next few generations are going to do because of what I've instilled in them. That's confidence. That's a legacy. That's a legacy. To be able to speak for subsequent generations because you know what God is going to do for them. If you read this passage out of context, you're going to miss it. Joshua is speaking this prophetic legacy over his family. I've continued the trajectory that was handed to me. And what do we know about Joshua? Well, not a lot, but we do know that his dad's name was Nun. And uh, that's about it. That's about all we know uh, about him. But uh, he was of the tribe of Ephraim, I believe. But we know because of his age that he actually was born in slavery in Egypt. We know that over these 400 and so years of Egyptian slavery, things got worse and worse and worse until the plagues. These were, Joshua was raised in the darkest moments of Israeli slavery in all of Egypt. These were dark, dark days. And we know that Joshua shares a name with Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, the Jehovah will save is what it means. And that when none looked down at his little baby boy in the darkest days of Israel, he said, Jehovah will save. That's the legacy that Joshua is walking in. The legacy of his dad 
What does that mean about his life? We couldn't possibly know, but we believe, I believe that Joshua is walking in this legacy of faith, leaving for the next generation what had been left to him. Jehovah will save. We're almost finished. Look at verse 16. And the people answered, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods, For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did all those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples with whom he passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who live in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. Very quickly, they retold the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what, yep, that. Yep, it was God. He did it and we are for him. And just as we expected, they agreed with Joshua. They acknowledged Jehovah. But the Israelites were never really skeptical. They they never really became skeptical. Their sin was not open rebellion or a refusal of God. They just attempted to, to let things go and assimilate into whatever culture they were in. They just kind of marinated in whatever environment they found themselves in. They got comfortable acknowledging God. They believed in God. They had no doubt in his miracles. They had no doubt that he had protected them and defended them. They agreed that he had achieved for them all their victories. We never find a time in scripture where Israel doubts God's existence. But we do read of them falling away often yet claiming to be the sons and daughters of Abraham. Most commentators agree when they say of the people, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord. They are appalled that Joshua is calling them to this. They're like, do you really think we, far be it from us, Joshua, that we would disagree with what you just said. And Joshua would say, I'm not saying you're in disagreement here but your life is proving you're in disagreement here. Not us, never, of course not. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you, I think, I don't know if he pointed his finger, but I think he did. I'm not sure, but it seems when he says you, that he's very intentional. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. What does that imply about them? He is a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witness. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. And they lived happily ever after. Joshua said, hey, listen, I know you. I know that you have foreign gods and foreign altars in your tents right this moment. 
You cannot serve God in the condition that you find yourself right now. He will not share. He is jealous. He wants all of you and he's willing to give all of himself for all of you. 